Good morning, everybody. <laughs> uh, if we haven't met before, my name is Joe, and I'm uh, one of the teaching pastors here at Kesed, and I also uh, get the sacred privilege of leading our student ministries. And I just want to say thank you for being here. Happy Labor Day weekend. And uh, one thing for me, I just, I want you to know, and I don't know why this isn't in my notes, but God just told me you are not here on ac- like by accident that every person in this room is here for a reason, and you're also here for, the reason might be for someone else in this room. And so I just wanna say thank you for, for being here. Thanks for being a part of what God's doing in our community. I'm really excited. So uh, I'm sharing a little standalone message today, um, but I wanna let you know this has been something that God has been working uh, in my heart on for a while. It's something I've been processing and thinking about for a long time. But in order to hop into that, I gotta tell you a story But the thing about it is, is up to this point, you have liked me. (laughs) And I want to tell you, uh, I'm going to tell you a story that's very awful. And I deeply regret it. And, uh, And I just want to let you know, I hope that as you hear this story, you don't judge the actions of the 15 year old version of myself. Um, but rather uh, you would at least realize that I was just a dumb teenager. Deal? Deal. Deal. (laughs) Well, you see, I grew up in a pretty broken home, uh, and one thing that that broken home ended up creating in me uh, was this deep-seated insecurity that caused me to want to long for people's affection and affirmation and acceptance, right? We all get that, that insecurity breeds insecurity. And so I grew up in an environment of insecurity and so therefore I was insecure. But one thing that insecurity does is it creates a a dynamic where you are longing to use people in relationships, not to be evil or bad, but because you need that affirmation. You need that attachment in order to feel whole. So one thing that happened as, as I became a teenager was, you know, I'm this five foot one inch sophomore going into high school. I was a, a 108 pounds and I was deeply insecure. And so at, one thing that was powerful though is, is going into my junior year of high school, I encountered Jesus. It radically changed my life. And, and next thing you know, I, be, I felt like a new person. I was anchored to this love that was so much bigger than anything I had known up to that point. But one thing that didn't go away was there was still that insecurity that undergirded my whole life. I still was that insecure kid, insecure kid, excuse me. And, and so one thing that, that did end up happening was, is uh, after that experience of uh, encountering Jesus at a youth camp and mission experience, I met a girl. And for the sake of this story, because some of you may be like Facebook stalkers and go online and look her up, we're going to call her Jane. <laughs> That's not her actual name, but that's what we're going to call her. And uh, the thing is, is I met Jane. She was one of the most kind, gentle, sweet, innocent young ladies I had ever met in my entire life up to that point, particularly after I had surrendered my life to Jesus. And so we started to, to engage in this friendship and dating relationship Uh, She lived about 90 minutes away from where I lived at the time. And one thing that would happen is we would talk on the phone every day. And then uh, every, you know, once a month or twice a month, she would drive up the 90 minutes to come and visit me. And the thing about it is, is I was insecure, but Jane was also insecure. And so what that caused her to do was long for my affection. And how she chose to try to achieve that affection and acquire it was through gifts, and so she would pay for everything. She would, she would pay for our dinners out. 
especially at my favorite Mexican restaurant at the time, La Hacienda. She would, she would uh, buy me, I was, I was a big Seahawks fan, she would buy me Seahawks gear, it was amazing. And she even took me to my first ever Seahawks game. It was December 9th, 2007. I vividly remember it. We would go to this game. I got to see like Kurt Warner throw five interceptions and Marcus Trufant picked the ball three times. It was amazing. I was on, I was on cloud nine. And I was really oblivious to what was happening. And so as uh, Jane drove me home, which by the way, I just wanna pause here and just realize now that I have two daughters, the high school version of me was like the last guy I would ever want to date my daughters. <laughs> because she drove me home, she paid for all the dates, she was the one that was trying to achieve my affection. And I was really happy just taking in the relationship. I, I, was, I, I was okay with that, until she dropped me off at home after that Seahawks game, walked me up to my, my front door on the porch. Again, this is backwards. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and she said three words that haunted me in that moment. She said, I love you. And at that moment, like, like I got hit by a Mack truck, I realized what I'm doing is not okay. Like I can't just consume in this relationship. I can't just take and receive and not give anything. And I realized deep down I wasn't ready for what this young lady was ready for. And so I said two words in response. I said, me too, which in hindsight, I realized was basically me saying, I love me too, <laughs> which is pretty terrible. <laughs> and so I, I slither back into my house and sit on the couch and I just think to myself, Jane has been a means to an end, but not the ends themselves. And I, I felt horrible. And I knew I needed to get out of this relationship, not because Jane's a terrible person, but because I have crafted and created an environment of a utilitarian relationship. I'm using somebody. And so I was like, I need to end it. But in my insecurity and never seeing relationships really modeled well, I didn't know how. So in my own power, I decided that day that I was never gonna talk to her again. True story. Uh, she would text me, didn't answer. She would call me, didn't answer. She would send emails when that was a thing, didn't answer. She finally started sending me like mail in the mail, like letters, just trying to say, hey, I just wanna talk, didn't answer. Yes, I know I'm terrible, right? You, I just instantly dropped down like 10 pegs in your book. I, it is horrible what I did. Years later, I did run into her at another missions experience. We were down in Louisiana helping with some Hurricane Katrina cleanup. And, uh, and I apologized. I told her, I am so sorry. I wasn't ready. But the thing about it is, is you guys are free to judge me. I, I actually hold myself in contempt already for that, for how I treated someone so kind and, and honest. But I want to ask you a question. Is this not how most of us in society treat one another? 
treat our communities? If you really think about it, obviously mine is an exaggerated and hyperbolic version, but how many of us like sneak in and out of communities just like this? We take and we consume, but then the moment that the relationship, the community requires more from us, we vanish. And I wanna posit to you a question that I wonder if this is because we have been conditioned as a culture to live in relationships. I wonder if this is how we view relationships, that, that th- everything from this idea of networking, right? I'm going to build friendships because I'm going to use you to climb up whatever ladders I'm going to set up in my life. Or this idea of social contracts, which is something psychologists are, and, and sociologists are labeling, that we live in a world of social contracts. Now, this is defined, defined as an agreement between communities that govern behavior in a certain context. But I wonder if these social contracts, what we're really saying is, is I scratch your back, you scratch mine. And I wonder if this dynamic in our relationships of this idea of people are utility for us to get what we want, to extract what we want, and to climb whatever ladders and to get to, to achieve ends to a certain means, right? Like that I'm willing to use my friendship with you if it means I end up where I want to. That works out when it benefits me, but what happens when people are messy and broken and life is hard and we don't have things figured out and the sky starts falling and our worlds fall apart? What happens then when I have nothing to offer you? See, let me tell you the problem with social contracts. For me, this is how I define a contract. A contract is an agreement between two parties describing the bare minimum each party needs to do in order to receive the desired outcome from another. This is uh, describing the bare minimum each party needs to do to receive the desired outcome from the other. Meaning that most of our relationships, I would argue, are actually bare minimums. That when we participate in church, when we participate in our communities, when we participate in our friendships, it's like, what's the bare minimum I need to do to check the box to get what I want? And I wonder if we all know that we're using and being used by one another, and it's the cancer that is actually killing our community, our intimacy, our deep sense of connection. I wonder if we've been conditioned to live this way, and it's why we have what Cigna is calling a loneliness epidemic. Loneliness epidemic. That is that many of us here today um, are alone, and, and Cigna has done a ton of research on this idea of loneliness, and particularly coming out of the pandemic, and what they've researched has been pretty profound, that culturally we are alone, we feel it. Um, Here's some stats for you that are just going to shock you. 61% of U.S. adults feel lonely most of the time. That is almost two out of three of us in this room feel alone. Meaning that we don't actually, we might be surrounded by people, but we don't actually feel like anyone gets us or wants to enter into the darkest, hardest parts of our lives. We feel like we're an inconvenience when we don't offer anything of value. 79% of Gen Z reports feeling alone most of the time. That means that eight out of 10, basically, of anyone uh, ages 24 to about 16 right now, they feel alone most of the time. They do not feel like they have anybody. 
71% of millennials feel alone most of the time. And boomers feel alone at, at about a 50% rate, one out of every two boomers. Now, it's easy to say, well, those Gen Zers and those millennials, they're alone because they're on their phone all the time, right? But I want to ask those of us that are older in this room, did they not inherit their way of thinking from you? I would argue that social media just exacerbated a way of thinking that they had inherited. That we are in shallow relationships, that most of our friendships, we just talk about sports or politics, and we never actually talk about what's going on in our world. And therefore, you add social media and a black mirror into their face, and they're just going to project the same thing, but instead of just to the people around them, to eight billion people. I'd argue that Gen Zers and millennials are just doing exactly what boomers did, but just with social media. 69% of moms report feeling alone most of the time, and this is tragic to me because think about how many moms are in any given community. And yet, in the stresses of their home life and trying to care for their kids and, and keep their world afloat, they feel like there's no one there to help, no one there to pick up. And, and loneliness is a health crisis comparable to smoking up to 15 cigarettes per day, as in it has a similar health effect on your body as smoking 15 cigarettes. The Journal of American Geriatric Society reports that people who regularly experience loneliness live five years shorter than their counterpart meaning that loneliness epidemic is literally an epidemic. And I think for me, one of the biggest challenges our culture faces and why we have this loneliness epidemic is because we do not exist in relationships the way God created us to. And I think for that, whether it's in our own insecurity or the way we've been modeled, like the way relationships have been modeled for us, many of us just feel alone because we don't feel we have anything to add of value to the relationships around us. And when we try, we feel used or abandoned. You know, one of the things I was just listening to recently said it, it's a really sad thing in our culture that we have apps that both can deliver food to our door and in 30 minutes, uh, we, can, we can enter into some of the most intimate relationships like that with no, nothing required of us at all. We have a socially contracted culture, and I think we're alone because of it. Richard Rohr, the American Franciscan priest, says this, that the greatest disease, and the point he, he hyphenates the word disease there because you hear the word ease, as in the greatest thing that's causing a lack of ease in our life. Facing humanity right now is our profound and painful sense of disconnection. This is the greatest ill to our culture as we speak. The fact that many of us feel alone, that we're not wanted, that there's no one that's gonna commit to us unless we have something of value to offer. Uh, Vincent van Gogh, uh, the, the famous painter who, who painted the famous painting Starry Night, he uh, even you know, a century ago wrote this, that a great fire burns within me, but no one stops to warm themselves at it, and passerbys only see a wisp of smoke. 
Now, I think our culture has made this worse, but I think this has been a human condition. That there are people in this room right now and who are watching online that have a great fire burning in them that's meant to warm the world around them and no one has stopped. Because we gotta get stuff done. We have transactions to make, we have things to achieve. And therefore we miss, I think, the way God wanted us to exist in community and in relationship. And I think if God doesn't offer contracts, he offers something better, and that is this idea of covenant. Covenant. Now, for those of you uh, who only see this word in your HOA agreements, or, or if you have attended a wedding or two, which I, uh, why this is so heavy on my heart is I've officiated five weddings this summer. And in all five of those weddings who happen to be former youth students, this, this word has just been so heavy on me. But let me explain what covenant actually is in the Bible. Because many people uh, articulate that covenant and contract are synonymous. But biblically, it could not be more opposite. Remember, a contract is what is the bare minimum you and I are agreeing to do where I can get what I want out of you and you get what you want out of me. And if you don't live up to your end, I no longer live up to mine. But a covenant in the Bible is the establishment of a blood relationship where there wasn't one before. Let me repeat that. A covenant is the establishment of a blood relationship where there wasn't one before. To give you a picture of what I mean, when, when my wife had our daughters, they looked like weird alien creatures. They, uh, it's not like I, I held them and got really great conversation and emotional support from them. They cried all the time. They ruined our sleep. All they wanted from us was to take, 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 right? I'm cold, give me something to wear. I'm hungry, give me something to eat. I'm dirty, change me. That was my relationship with, well, that was my wife's relationship with my daughters and mine for the first couple years, right? And yet I would have bled my veins dry for my daughters they didn't get my bare minimum. They didn't get my wife's bare minimum. They got everything. Even though we don't really receive anything on the surface of value in return. Now imagine if that same zeal and passion and relationship is applied to the community around you. How would that change things? How would that look different? And so in light of this, like this, covenant community where there's the establishment of family-like relationships, where there wasn't family before, how would that change things? Tim Keller, the late Tim Keller, uh, has this great quote that covenant community is like air. We, do, we don't miss it until we need it. And I think culturally, based on all the stats on loneliness, we need it. We need it. And I think we need it because this is how God has interacted with his creation since the beginning of time. If you, if, as you start to dive into the biblical narrative and scriptures, what you're gonna notice is God is covenanting everywhere. He is establishing covenants all over the biblical story. Whether it's in Genesis chapter eight, these are, this is a list of all the covenants in the Bible. Genesis eight, where God promises Noah, never again will I flood the earth. And on the surface, you're like, great, God's not gonna destroy things. But what God is agreeing to is, I'm gonna lead out of my compassion, even over my justice, though it's deserved. And God is saying, you will always have my compassionate heart. 
Or it's Genesis 12, 15, 17, and 22, where God promises Abraham, I'm going to bless the world through your faith. And, and you get this beautiful picture that God has not given up on his creation. He has a strong desire to bless, and nothing is going to stop him. And through faith, we partner with him. Or it's Exodus 24, the Mosaic or Old Covenant is what it's called, where God, you, God establishes his, his, his tension between his holiness and his desire to be in relationship and we realize we really struggle with that tension. Or 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 16, where God promises King David that one day there is gonna be a king who arrives on this planet and rules with justice and righteousness and begins to fix all of the oppression and selfishness on our planet. And Luke 22 shows us who that king is through the establishment of a new covenant, which we'll dive into a little bit more. But all over the Bible, over and over and over, God is, is entering into a covenant. It's God's modus operandi or his way of operating with creation. God says, I'm gonna enter into a covenant with you. You are gonna be literally my child and I will be your father. That's how God enters into relationships. One of my favorite quotes is from Alistair Wilson and Jamie Grant where they say, the idea of covenant is fundamental, is foundational to the Bible story. At its most basic, covenant presents God's desire to enter into relationship with men and women created in his image. This is reflected in the repeated covenant refrain, I will be your God and you will be my people. Covenant is all about relationship between the creator and his creation. The idea may seem simple. However, the implications of covenant and covenant relationships between God and humankind are vast. This is such a foundational idea. I, if you leave with anything, I pray you leave with this idea that this is how God has chosen to enter into relationship with you. Not through contract, not through a checklist of things you have to do to make sure God loves you and is present, but through covenant, where God says, you are my child, I will be your God, you will be my people. And in every instance of an established covenant, God has a, a similar refrain like that. So what does a covenant relationship look like? Henry Nouwen uh, has this great quote where he says, when God makes a covenant with us, God says, I will love you with an everlasting love. I will be faithful to you even when you run away from me or reject me or betray me. In our society, we don't speak much about covenants. We speak about contracts. When we make a contract with a person, we say, I will fulfill my part as long as you fulfill yours. And when you don't live up to your promises, I no longer have to live up to mine. Contracts are often broken because the partners are unwilling or unable to be faithful to their terms. But God didn't make a contract with us. God made a covenant with us. And God wants our relationships with one another to reflect that covenant. That's why our marriages, friendships, life and community are all ways to give visibility to God's faithfulness in our lives together. Isn't that a powerful quote? 
And if you're a parent in here, you know what I'm talking about. When, you, when your son or daughter was born and you knew in that moment, I found the first thing I'm actually willing to die for. And your kid could disrespect you, disobey you, run away from you, and you would still give every part of you for that kid. Imagine if your relationships had even a, an iota, a percentage of that kind of love. How would that change our world? How would that change our communities? One of the cool ways when God establishes a covenant, and it's really powerful, uh, you'll see it is particularly when God established the covenant with Abraham, he literally uh, has Abraham cut an animal in half. I know, pretty gruesome. But in the ancient world, you'd cut that animal in half, and then you and the person you're entering into the covenant with, you would walk hand in hand in between the middle of those two animals. And now the covenant is established. And the, the picture there was, is if I don't live up to my end of the covenant, I be, I'm like that animal. You have the right to kill me. Really dark, right? But when God tells Abraham to cut that animal in half, God is the only one that walks through. God's the only one. Because it's not dependent on Abraham He's going to fail. He's going to mess up. He's going to struggle. He's not going to have it all figured out. And God's like, I'm still going to be faithful. And I think the implications of this on our friendships, on our community, and our small groups would be life-changing. What if I told you there's a story in the Bible of a woman who you would least expect who enters into a covenant relationship with someone not a marriage, just a, a covenant relationship, and it changes the whole world. It's one of the most beautiful and profound stories in the entire Bible, and it's the character of Ruth. Now, I don't know if you've read the, the, the book of Ruth, but it's this little four-chapter book in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament, and it's one of the most beautiful stories in the entire Bible. Not just because you have a really cool story, but I don't know if you realize God doesn't speak in the entire book. Never in the book do you hear God did this or God did that or God spoke, thus says the Lord. You don't hear God speaking. But the reader who's paying attention will realize that God is showing up through the people, through people who enter into covenant relationships and Ruth being the first. And so for those of you, let me just give you a quick little background uh, in the story. Ruth uh, begins the story with a, a man from Bethlehem, which is an important town in the biblical narrative, and he and his wife experience a famine, and so they go to an eastern uh, a neighbor tribal nation named Moab. Now, the Moabites are hated by the Jewish people. As a matter of fact, they're cursed in the Hebrew Bible for 10 generations after the story of Moses. They're despised. It would be similar to, uh, it'd be similar in the, the, you know, in our context if we heard about the, the Hutus and the Tutsis, right? Like, it would be like that kind of dynamic. They are not, they do not jive well together. And God literally promises uh, that he's gonna take care of his people. And so Elimelech and his wife, Naomi, they go to Moab in order to find food. And while they're there, they bring their two sons and their two sons marry Moabite women, which is not great to Jewish people. These are not the kind of people you want to date. These are not the kind of people you wanna marry. And they do, and along the way, uh, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, he dies. 
And next thing you know, Naomi's two sons die as well, leaving three widows in the ancient world where there isn't a social welfare system because your family is the social welfare system. And so these women are destitute, alone, have nothing. What are they to do? And it's in this process that Naomi makes the decision with her daughters, her daughters-in-law, excuse me, to return home. But along the way, we see a couple pictures here that I want you to see. One, we see these social contracts starting to come up. And then we'll also see an example of a covenant. Let's take a look in Ruth chapter one. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there if you'd like. But the verses will be on the screen. In verse six, then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she's hearing here, oh man, maybe God did provide. And in the ancient world, uh, most of the time, if you women like this would have been forced into some form of prostitution, there was, there was no hope for them. But Jewish people, God had a specific rule that for those of us that would have a farm or would have land where we're growing agriculture, uh, the, the, the edges of your crop were to be left for people who didn't have anything. So she knows if I return home, at least I'll be able to eat, hopefully. So she set out from that place where she was in verse seven uh, with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. Notice here that Naomi is already recognizing, I have nothing to offer you. I don't want to burden you with my stuff. How many of us, when we have conversations with friends and family, most of the time, we talk about everything around our lives and we never actually really talk about what's going on in our hearts. Most of us have, like, like especially in light of the, the cultural age we're in, most of us have hundreds if not thousands of relationships and connections. We're a mile wide, but truly we are an inch deep. And if we're honest, I think if we're truly honest, we don't want to share our stuff, not because uh, we, we think we don't matter, but rather because we say, when I share my stuff with you, I have nothing to offer you in this moment. I have nothing to offer you except my brokenness, my pain, my fear, my hurt, my sorrow. And so why would you ever stay? And so then it's easier to isolate and push people out because if I have nothing, if I can only give you my hurt, you're going to leave anyways. So just go. And if we're honest, that's why most of us isolate, especially when life gets hard, because we don't think we're worth sticking around for. And that's what Naomi's doing. That's what Naomi's doing. Ladies, I have nothing to offer you. This social contract won't work because I can't hold up my end. So you go back. And thankfully, the girls are like, the the women are like, no, like we're gonna stay. But Naomi is insistent that you can't enter this part of my brokenness in verse 11. But But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? 
Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? In the ancient world, if a man died and his wife would marry, would be married by her, the man's brother who passed away. And this was a way of protecting her, saying you will always have someone to provide for you. She's saying, I have no more sons for you. I'm old at this point. Turn back, my daughters, in verse 12. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say, I have hope, that's a, that's a painful line there. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, and Orpah leaves. Because again, she's like, I have no hope. I have nothing to offer you. Therefore, you should not stick around. You don't want my mess. But do you know the most life-changing relationships that we encounter in this life are the ones where people say, I want the mess. I want every part. I want the broken parts of your story I want to be with you in the times where all you can do is share your tears. Those are the best friendships. Those are the best relationships in community. And this is where you see covenant relationship for the first time in this story, because notice the next part of the verse, but Ruth clung to her. Ruth clung to her. And listen in verse 15. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Leave. You're not getting it, Ruth. Get out of here. I have nothing for you. And notice Ruth. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. Notice here, for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Do you guys remember how God enters a covenant? What's the refrain? What's the line? I will be your God. You will be my people. Ruth is using covenant language here. Notice here, where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Man, can you imagine if you had this kind of friendship, if you had this kind of relationship where someone says, I may not get anything of value on the surface from you, but I'm gonna be with you till the end of the line. You, you are not gonna get rid of me. Those are like the best relationships, right? When you have a friend that's like, I'm gonna be annoyingly present in your life. You may run, I'm coming after you. You may hide, I'm gonna find you. You may push me away and my arms will still be wide open. Those are the relationships that change our lives, amen? And the beautiful thing here that I just want you to hear is Ruth, again, God doesn't actively like work or speak in this book. You hear people saying, may God do this or heard that God might have done that. In this moment, in the darkest moment in Naomi's life, Ruth, this Moabite woman that the Jewish people despise, Ruth is the closest thing to God in her story. 
And it's because when we enter into covenant relationships, we look like God to each other. I think for many of us, especially early on in our faith, we see God the most clearly in the faces of the people around us. And so in verse 18, and when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Because Ruth in this moment loved her with the same passion or a similar passion that God does. And you don't get rid of that kind of love. Bruce Walke, the famous uh, Old Testament theologian said, we are never more like God than when we make a covenant. And we are never more unlike him than when we break one. And so it's covenant relationships that both make us become more like God and help other people see God more clearly. And it's why it's so devastating when those kinds of relationships in our church hurt. That's why it's even more devastating because something that looked like God was taken away and it damages us. I told you that this covenant friendship that Ruth entered into changed the world and I'm not lying. Ruth literally meets one of uh, Naomi's neighbor, or uh, sorry, uh, family members while she is in Bethlehem, marries him and becomes the great grandma to King David. And for those of us that don't know the rest of the story, King David ends up being the, the descendant, the, I'm sorry, the ancestor of Jesus. As a matter of fact, this despised Moabite woman is one of four women in Jesus' genealogy. You would not expect it, but because of her covenantal commitment, she got to be a part of God's great plan to save the world. We have no idea what our relationships have the power to do, and she didn't in that moment. But it's only in hindsight that I'm like, that level of covenant commitment changed the world. Imagine if someone could say that about you in a thousand years. Your, your commitment to a community changed the world. That'd be pretty amazing. So what does this look like? What happens if here at Kesed, this becomes how our relationships look? How would that change things? Imagine if there were Ruths running around everywhere saying, you may try to push me away, I'm not going anywhere. You got me until the end of the line. How different would our community look? Can I show you an example of the closest thing I've seen to this kind of relationship in our church? You see, we, we got the chance to take 90 teenagers to camp a, uh, a month ago. And while we were there, uh, one of the powerful things to me about teenagers is those, we, had a, we had a ton of adults who came and volunteered who gave up weeks of work, time with their families, sacrificed a ton to come for a full week with teenagers. And if you've never served with teenagers, let me tell you, they have really high highs. They have really, really low lows. <laughs> Our leaders shed their blood, sweat, and tears for those teenagers. And oftentimes, especially early on, teenagers push you away. But through that commitment, through those leaders saying, I'm going to be here to listen and care and show up, and I'm going to love you, and I'm going to, I'm going to look past the broken parts of you, or the, even the parts of you that you're trying to project, through that, something powerful happened. The, the last night of camp, 
this little sixth grade boy comes up to me, comes from a, a pretty broken home life, and, and he says, and by the way, this would be the last kid you would have ever expected to do this, says, hey, I just got off the phone with my mom and dad, and I want to get baptized tonight. And I'm like, oh, okay, and I explain baptism to, it, to him, and I'm like, are you sure you still want to? And he's like, yes. And so then at that point, we take him down to the lake, and and we baptized him, and it was really powerful. Next thing you know, uh, we brought two of our deaf students, and thanks to a bunch of interpreters and, and, and volunteers who, who helped care for them so that way they could hear the gospel in a way they could understand. And they, they both were like, we just got off the phone with our parents too through the interpreters, and we want to get baptized. And the next thing you know, a, a small little fire spreads and student after student after student's like, I just got off the phone with my parents. I want to get baptized. And friends, I want to tell you, we baptized 19 teenagers at 11 p.m. at camp. And I want to tell you that I'm so confident it's because for the first time they experienced covenantal relationships the kind of relationships where we give for each other, not just take. And when people encounter that love, it changes them. And just so you believe me, I wanna show you the video, just a little two minute snippet from camp. Take a look.
that kind of relationship changes things. And what I want you to hear, what I want you to hear at camp was we didn't do anything special. It's not like we were some sages coming down the mountain with the truths from God that no one else knew. It's not that we had the, the most fun games that anyone has ever played. No, what it took was adults who were like, I'm gonna sacrificially and covenantally love teenagers, and it changed their lives. And the thing is, is people aren't, we're complicated, but we're not that complicated. There's a bit of all of us that that's just what we long for. Someone would tell us we're worthy of sacrificing for. Even if in the moment, darkest moments of my life, I have nothing to offer you. And so I want more of these moments in our church. Because can you imagine if that kind of reality spread throughout our whole community and even our whole world? And so one other thing I'm planning on doing this year with a crew of people from our churches, we're going to be taking a team down to Mexico. We're going to call this experience Mission Everywhere Mexico. I think we got a graphic right there. Uh, it's going to be at the end of June. And that's because, man, to go into a cross-cultural experience and say, hey, we have nothing to offer you but our presence and our love. And we're going to be building houses and doing a VBS and a vision clinic. And if you're interested at all, we have a, an informational meeting on Sunday, September 24th after the 11 a.m. service. I want to encourage you, if you want to be a part, come check it out. Because when you love that way, it changes you. But man, it's a ripple effect where God can use it to change the world. But regardless of if you go on that experience or camp or any other experience, I want you to hear that the world needs you. Our church needs you. Look around this room. And there are some, of, there are some people who are carrying so much. And they won't speak up because they don't want to burden each other. They don't want to burden you. But could you imagine if we say, I love you despite your burden? So in a moment, I'm gonna close our time in prayer and uh, the worship team's gonna come back up and we are going to uh, worship and we're gonna take communion at our own time. We have a couple tables up front here with gluten-free bread and juice and, and these just symbolize uh, Jesus's institution of a new covenant. I just want to encourage you during the song, take it at your own time and in your own way. But would you reflect on the love that gives us the example of the covenant we're called to enter into? I'm just going to read the passage and then we're going to close. But in Luke 22, verse 14 through 20, Jesus says, and when the hour came, he, he being Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Jesus is repurposing the Passover meal. And so in verse 17, and he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And when he took the bread and he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And I just want you to hear as you hold that bread today, given for you. And likewise, the cup, verse 20, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. 
and Jesus says as he holds the cup and gives it to them, this is the, the, the picture of a new agreement. Now remember, when you established a covenant, you would walk through the middle and anyone who doesn't live up to their end was supposed to be like the dead animal. And as Jesus gives the cup and says, this is the new covenant in my blood given for you. The picture there that he's pointing to is when you fail at the covenant, when you don't live up to it, when you mess up, when you have mistakes, it's not you that's gonna die anymore. I'm gonna die for you. And as you hold that cup, no matter where you are in life right now, may it be a, may it be a reminder of the love that was willing to die for you and a God who is willing to bleed his veins dry for you. Let's pray. God, I just wanna say thank you Thank you that you have called us to live in light of this covenant. God, that we have been called to enter into a covenant and that that covenant changes us. In God, most rooms I'm in, I feel like I need to project a certain image of myself. I feel like I need to, I need to force myself to be okay because then I have something to offer and I wanna say sorry, Lord. God, I want to ask today that you would help us uh, not only live in light of the covenant relationship with you, but also uh, help us enter into covenant relationships with one another. And God, in light of those covenant relationships, would you change our community and would you change our world? In Jesus' name, amen.
get to heaven and Jesus takes this meal with us because he says I'll take it again in the kingdom he says this is my body and my blood broken and poured out for you I think you're going to get to hear him say audibly and verbally and you were worth it you were worth it and my prayer for you today is that you can experience a community that reminds you of that truth while we wait for heaven uh, I want to say thanks for coming, and I want to invite you back next week. Danny's launching us in a new series called The Work, where we learn how to be the church even when we're outside of the church, whether at work or at home or in every arena of our lives, learning to do the work of the church uh, anywhere we are. Thank you, guys. God bless. We'll see you next week.